Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm very happy to have four lovely gentlemen with me today. Um, you have to give these guys a special welcome and a special <laughs> thanks because uh, this is coordinating many different time zones and uh, this is ultimately not super convenient for everyone. So it's it's amazing that the guys kind of make the time to have this discussion happen because I know these can be super valuable and without blabbing on too much we have Mena Hentemans, Alberto Nunez, Brian Miner and Jackson Pios on the show and we're going to be talking all about refeeds which have been in the industry and talked about for ages and I just want to come out with a definition and make sure everyone's on the same page with what when we're talking about refeed what it is. I tend to consider refeeds one to three days of increased carbs to take calories up to maintenance. Generally the goal being better or higher training quality, mitigation of metabolic adaptations, mental break from dieting, and ultimately maybe better body composition outcomes. And that's something we're going to be talking about. That's normally when I'm thinking refeeds. Is everyone on the same page with that sort of definition? I think Jackson probably has the best objective de definition, I imagine. Yeah, so I think, Steve, in when we're talking in the context of our little fitness industry niche, that's probably pretty close to bang on. Um, it gets a little bit broader when we're actually talking about the research out there in sort of the intermittent energy restriction realm. Um, like when we're discussing refeeds and we're trying to pull from the, from the research, sometimes we're looking at protocols that basically um, define refeeds as just a intermittent increase in energy intake that's happening somewhere along the weight loss phase and that can last from one to three days and that can be sometimes um, just a reduction in the in the energy deficit to take into energy balance or even to a slight energy surplus so it gets a little bit hairier um, and that's why we have a couple of issues when looking at sort of um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses uh, on the topic because it's it's sort of collating all these different protocols that have quite substantial variation into this sort of umbrella term of intermittent dieting, um, which makes it a little bit tough to sort of pick out what are the overall trends going on. But I think for the for the um, context of this video, your, your definition was pretty close to bang on, Steve. Cool. Yeah, I think it's important because we will be talking a bit about some of the literature and obviously we'll be talking about lots of kind of anecdotes, client work, that sort of thing as well. So I think it's good to have that in mind because yeah it's it makes it a lot easier when there's a clear definition but when there isn't like you said you can't just pick out a meta-analysis and be like yeah this is proves refeeds in my eyes are worth it or whatever it might be so one of the reasons i wanted to get this discussion going was off the back of uh, actually menno made an article about kind of bill campbell's recent uh bodybuilding refeed style uh, examination and also jackson um you had your own actual kind of published uh, article on that as well and we had Bill Campbell and I'm not kind of unfortunate Bill's not here with us today, but I thought four people was kind of ample and uh, we didn't want to have too many people in the pot. But we did discuss that on the podcast, episode 212, if people want to kind of refer back to that. And that was the first study examining bodybuilding star refeeds of two days of carbohydrate refeeds. Uh, and that ultimately the outcome from that study was, or what was said in the study was it, it preserved fat-free mass, um, and a secondary finding was that resting metabolic rate was higher, uh, was higher and better maintained, uh, albeit only slightly uh, with the two-day carbohydrate refeed versus just a straight deficit through the week. And I thought it'd be good to first of all start with Jackson, because I know you found some contradictory conclusions uh, to that study, and I'd love to just for you to kind of explain those as uh, briefly as you like, and then we can dig into some of the other stuff. Yeah, so I won't bog us too um, deep into the technicalities of sort of the, the statistical analysis that was completed. Um, but basically, um, when going through um, the Campbell paper and, and looking through the results um, that they displayed, uh, I could quite quickly notice that um, the statistical outcomes uh, just weren't in line um, with the conclusions that the authors were making. Um, and I know Menno picked this up uh, quite early on as well. Um, so I decided to dig a little bit deeper and, and thank you to Bill and his team for making the raw data available so I could do this. Um, but basically, I just went and reanalyzed um, all the raw data um, in a 
method that I thought was most appropriate um, and most applicable to these sort of randomized control trials. Um, and when I did do this statistical analysis, um, my expectations were basically confirmed in that um, there was no statistical difference in the preservation of either fat pre-mass or resting, resting metabolic rate between the refeed and non-refeed conditions. Now, as that is the case, we um, I discussed with um, one of my supervisors and a couple of other international researchers that are in the sort of nutrition research scene. Um, and we basically thought that um, a correction um, was necessary in the literature so that athletes could basically be informed and, and not be sort of confused about the true application that refeeds um, might have. Because I think as the Campbell paper in its original form stands, um, the, the conclusions that the authors are saying, um, they're just not supported by uh, the data that we actually do have. So um, that was the purpose of the letter to the editor um, and we're happy that uh, we we got it out there now because now sort of the community um, seems to have just taken a little step back on refeeds. Um, I think uh, a lot of people were probably a little bit too sort of flying the flag pro refeeds and talking about all the metabolic and, and muscle retention benefits of them early on and they would use the Campbell paper to support this but now I think um, now that we've sort of brought some of these conclusions into question it, it's sort of caused a few of us to sort of rethink our strategies and, and potentially sort of um, moderate our statements when we're talking about these sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I, you've come on the podcast and talked about refeeds and diet breaks and things before, and kind of I think people really want such tools to be ultimately incredibly powerful, and maybe we end up bigging up that fact too much. Especially, I guess coaches are trying to draw clients in. Sometimes it's like, oh, I know how to do this kind of magical tool with you or something. Uh, they might try and sell it as that at least, and but I know they have like we have Brian and uh, Alberta on who have used them to good success practically as well. Uh, but first, I just wanted to go to Menno to see if there's anything uh, you had in addition to what Jackson said there in terms of the, the Bill Campbell study. I think that summarized it really well. I know that uh, Bill has also published a reply to the letter to the editor now and uh, acknowledged uh, a correction, at least partly. I think he didn't change the title. Um, which I think is the most provocative bit uh, and says it preserves fat-free mass, which is technically not true because it's only dry fat-free mass based on the analyses. Um, and make, extrapolating that to muscle mass is when you see no difference also in training volume and in total fat-free mass and in rest of metabolic rate, then I think it's very questionable to extrapolate dry fat-free mass to um, muscle mass because that's you know, ultimately what we care about. Uh, does it help preserve muscle? Uh, any fat-free mass preservation is probably good, but it's muscle that we're probably mostly interested in. So I think that's questionable, and especially because in the study, the last uh, body composition measurement was done only a few days after the last refeed, and there was no training in that period. And we know that intramuscular glycogen stores are retained when people don't exercise for at least five days. We know that from previous literature because glycogen that's in your muscles is not like the liver it's basically used only within that muscle because it's because uh, the enzymes are different so uh, if you do the refeed and you store more glycogen and then you don't train then you retain that glycogen storage to a very large extent and that's also the, the premise behind carb loading and contest prep so i think the the timing of that measurement also confounds the results of it if you combine that with the reanalysis i think that, that paper makes a, a very um, very contentious case for superiority of refeeds over continuous daily energy deficit. Yeah, I know. I think they purposely tried to mitigate by measuring two days afterwards. Uh, and I think Bill has said that he had instructed them to continue dieting. I guess that's open to kind of debate whether or not they were, but still, I guess you'd expect some glycogen to be maintained still. I, Brian, have you got any kind of thoughts on the... Oh, sorry, Jackson, do you want to pop in quickly? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if that what they should have done is they should have remeasured sort of immediately before the the final refeed, sort of after their five days of energy restriction, because basically I came up with the same issue when planning my diet break study. I was like, well, I can't take my final measurements on day seven of the diet break 
and on the final week that they feel that they complete the study because obviously glycogen and fat fat free mass is going to be and resting metabolic rate are probably going to be inflated substantially so what we did was we took that final measurement point after their final block of three weeks of dieting just before the final diet break started to sort of account for that so i think um i think probably if bill had his time again he probably would have taken those measurements sort of on day five of their dieting period as opposed to sort of um, in close proximity after the refeed, where it was likely that probably some of that residual dry glycogen was probably hanging around. Yeah, I also note that uh, we actually have a study that did this. Uh, well, we're not sure if we have a study, <laughs> but uh, Jacob Wilson et al. published a study or published data uh, with a ketogenic diet study in which uh, they did the measurements before and after carb loading basically at the end, and it made substantial difference in body composition. Now, there are a lot of concerns about the validity of those data, um, but I guess at least it shows that he thought that there would be a difference. <laughs> Absolutely. Brian, do you want to have yeah. you got thoughts on this? Yeah. And, you know, I have to uh, give some credit to Eric Helms because we were talking a bit about this. Um, and one thing that we were wondering about that data was the fat-free mass was insignificantly you know it, the differences were insignificant between groups but the dry fat free mass there was about i think a 1.7 kilo difference um so it seems though if you if you measured after the refeed you would still expect there to be water with that glycogen so it seems odd that the fat that the fat free mass isn't greater in that group if the dry fat free mass is significantly greater and then if you like i think a case could be made if the continuous dieting group was you know more depleted you know they there could be something offset there but even if you were you know even if they were 50 percent glycogen depleted and you were to do the math like assuming about three grams of water for every gram of glycogen there's still about a kilo that's unaccounted for there. And so I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure what's going on there. It could be that the, I think they use bioelectrical impedance to measure the body water. It could be that that's just not an accurate way to do this. Um, but I wanted to kind of throw that out there because it does seem that there's, there's some inconsistencies in what you would expect based off of that. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Um, and I think it's it's in particular uh, problematic here that they use bioelectrical impedance. Like even DEXA, I would have said, well, you know, maybe that's actually, there could still be something going on there because you didn't say the, the increased water retention. But by A, uh, from what I've seen is, in my experience, is just really confounded and not always in a very predictable way because DEXA is like, predictably confounded by changes in hydration status, I would say. Yeah. But BIA just goes all over the place. Like I have some clients that use BIA and it just, it doesn't drop. Like they lose 10% body fat and it doesn't drop. I've had BIA measurements done in contest prep and I was 20%. One week later, I did it on a different machine and I was 5%. Yeah. So it's like the, the error on, on BIA can be huge and not always uh, in a sensible way even. Yeah, I guess. Would you expect the the degree of error to be consistent between groups, though? I mean, I guess that's the the counter argument uh, there. Uh, yeah, I'd say that the problem is that I don't know how um, glycogen storage, for example, would affect the error, and I, I wouldn't say that I trust it to be consistent. You know? Okay. Yeah. Do you know if there? This just. Oh, sorry, Jackson. Go ahead. I go. Go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say, do you know, because Menno, I've had similar experiences and granted, like I, I had a scale, my first prep where you put your feet on the things and it was like the day of the show, I was like 23% body fat. So, so um, but I, do you know if there's a difference in whether or not somebody is using like the full body one where they like, are, are some of these different machines validated in yeah, above there is others? There's a huge difference in single and multi-frequency. Okay. So single frequency is basically just plain bad, and multi-frequency is actually like in-body, uh, sometimes compar comparable to DEXA, but still error margins, I would say, 
um, may, maybe a little bit less uh, consistent. Okay. I guess. I was just, oh, go on, sorry. Jackson. I was just going to sort of add to the commentary about the 1.7 um, kilos of dry fat free mass difference. Um, when So one of the issues that we had with the Campbell analyses was um, they performed what is called a per protocol analysis, which means they only analyze the people who stayed in the study the whole time um, and complied to the intervention um, correctly. Now, you might say, well, that, that sounds pretty fine. That, but that in when we're actually looking in randomized controlled trials, that's actually not the preferred and respected way to do things. What we actually want to do is something called um, an intention to treat analysis, which basically means that all the people who start the study are included in the analysis as they go through, because um, basically it gives us a um, a more real world. Um, interpretation of what's actually happening in the study because you've got to remember that especially when we're talking about sort of dieting interventions and things like that people drop out in real life and just because they dropped out that's still data and that's data that needs to be appreciated so what we did was we did an alternative analysis um, a per protocol analysis and we found that when we ran that analysis and there's plenty of research to show why per um, so intention to treat analyses are preferred over per protocol analyses. Um, we actually saw that that 1.7 kilo difference fell to 900 grams difference. So now we're getting even even smaller difference here in this dry fat free mass. And when we start to consider things like the two day proximity um, following the refeed, and that they were instructed to follow the diet, but like I've worked with a lot of I worked with 60 athletes in my diet break study and geez, like the last week of testing, all they were talking about were the foods that they wanted to have sort of as soon as they finished the study. So I'm not sure how confident we can be that um, they went back onto their deficit calories just because the sort of researchers said, can you please do it? Um, so once we factor all those things in, um, I, I sort of have less and less confidence in that in that dry fat free mass figure. Yeah, I'd say that uh, um, the preferred way is what you want an intention to treat and a per protocol and then see also how they differ. Yeah, exactly. Because um, um, you would think, and I think Bill also wrote this in his, in his reply, that uh, as you also said, the, the sort of the intuition is basically, well, why do we care about people that didn't follow the protocol? We want to know what happens when you follow the protocol. But the issue with that is that you have uh, some biases, like attrition bias. So there are certain people that, for certain reasons, didn't drop out, and it's probably caused also by the difference in the protocols. So if a certain protocol changes people to, um, for, or for example, if it weeds out people that cannot stick to the diet, you may bias the results to only include certain individuals that may respond particularly well to that protocol, for example. So there are a lot of biases going on that even if you think, well, it makes sense to look at the people who stuck to the protocol, um, you ideally also still want to look at how does that differ from if we look at all the data that we have. They haven't. Did he provide any data on the attrition rate per group? Because that, I mean, that could be interesting in terms of the compliance and the psychological component potentially. Like, if there's anything there from from the raw data, the only data that was available in the spreadsheet was the people that completed it and complied with okay. it. So they, they didn't have any of the, the dropout guys in there. I guess. Not, oh, sorry, man. I'm not 100 sure. I think they. They did include the attrition rate per group, and it was pretty high. I know that just, the just 50%. I'm just not sure how it differed um, between the refeed versus the non-refeed group. Right. But they they, lo they lost about 50% of the people that were there on day one compared to the people that were there at the end of week that's, seven. Yeah, that's a lot. I know that Tampa University in general, um, I think every university deals with uh, big problems in diet adherence studies. But uh, mm -hmm. what I've seen from, from Tampa is pretty high attrition rates in general. Yeah, usually we predict for like 20% um, dropout. Yeah. So when we're talking about 50%, 50 like I think um, I think it'd be crazy not to do an intention to treat analysis uh, as well as the per protocol analysis. So at least you can compare to see if something's there. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. 
I guess this is really interesting because for some people, refeeds promote adherence and then for some people, they tend to throw off adherence. And I guess this is something, Alberto, you can probably talk to because I know 3DMJ are probably relatively well known for using refeeds. Um, and so I know you've probably used them with some decent success. Uh, how have you found kind of people have liked refeeding in terms of adherence and just kind of your general experience of refeeds would be cool to hear? Um, yeah, so... So when uh, this, the the Campbell study first came out, like on my end, it was more like, good. Well, we're looking at that, but that was kind of it. You know, it's like okay to start, um, and that's why I feel this discussion is very important because there's a lot of folks out there that are, um, it's you know, it's a diaspartic acid effect. You know, where it's like one thing comes out and it's like let's jump on that, whatever it might be. You know, like that group who, you know, prior to this. Um, it was like, okay, I guess I better start using refeeds because science, right? And then like now it's like, okay, no, refeeds are bad. So, you know, we're kind of here to have an open discussion and, and go over, yeah, I think it's important, like what I have seen in practice, how we got here, because it was not an overnight thing. I think our uh, previous refeed protocol was something where every three or four days we'd have a high day, um, sometimes once a week. Um the the 48 hour 72 hour repeat thing was something that uh i think initially actually lyle was talking about and that uh also messed with what i would see during peak weeks was what got us to start doing this and typically i think especially with um the majority of our first time athletes we usually go with the front load which just means you know we do the majority of our carving up early in the week. So what would often happen is here I am like beating the shit out of this person to try to have them look like halfway decent for their show. And, uh, and then we start the front load and it's like, whoa, like I bring down cardio, training's down a slight bit and we see weight loss. And this would happen with, I'd say, easily like half of, of all people. And if not, they would look better. Um, you would see water retention drops in, I'd say, nearly everybody. Um, and it, right then it hit me. It's like, oh, wow. Like how many adjustments have I probably made along the way? that were not necessary because I was trying to work through those murky waters. So first intention, more than anything, obviously, uh, as a remote coach was like, let me help myself here because, you know, I want to be able to see what's actually going on in regards to the body comp changes in regards to like body weight. And this can potentially save me a lot of adjustments and moves that maybe I don't have to make. Maybe I am running my people into the ground just a little bit more than, than I need to. Um, which obviously is going to help everywhere. Um, they're less likely to, to uh, quit their prep. Um, obviously, um, you know, more calories, less cardio. Our training quality is probably going to be a little bit better, which can definitely help salvage everything from muscle to uh, um, just keeping them sane. Um, so, that's where it started from was basically something that I was seeing in front loads during peak weeks. I was seeing a lot of edema being cleared and it started with, I wasn't very brave on my end. So it's like, okay, if I saw this with someone, I would start doing it from that point after that peak week as we continued to pick up more shows. Um, and then eventually it became something where, you know, we kind of did the traditional every three to four days, once a week sort of repeat to start. And then somewhere in the middle, once I, I felt they were getting to uh, that part where the diet wasn't always fun, we started to incorporate those a little bit more. And now, just as I think, um, for the same reason that maybe I use deloads on beginner lifters, um, they don't always need them. It's just simply to get into the good habit, build up the this momentum this is how this prep is going to be the whole way so um now it's it's pretty standard uh, the you know five days low two days high method and uh and yeah for me originally it it was something that just came out of 
peak weeks. And it was there for years. I did not, I'm like, this can't be it. And I was trying to look at other things, like maybe something about the extra food is charging them up. Uh, but this, the, the water retention actually being cleared was, was what it was this, this whole time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think anyone who's dieted a long period of time, and it depends a little bit person to person as ever individualization there. But I know some people really do hold on to that kind of stressed related water retention. And so like having that ability to clear that to kind of clear picture. And I guess that's why we peak people generally is like to reduce stress is a huge part of that and then fill out glycogen stores. Uh, I know Menno, you coach quite a lot of people and physique competitors as, as well. Have you found a different, have you had a different experience with that? Have you had different challenges or kind of opportunities with refeeds? I'd say my experiences with refeeds are uh, pretty mixed. Um, well, let me start saying by Encantos competitors. I'd say that my experience with carb loading, as I would call it, which I guess you could say is also a refeed, uh, is enormously positive. And that's one of the few things I would say uh, we now actually have scientific research showing it, it increases muscle volume, but that's one of the things where I think the bros were really well ahead of the science. Like this stuff works, like it really works. And if you do it really well, you can make like a two kilogram difference, sometimes more in fat-free mass that looks more like five kilo, I would say, because it creates that, that full look. Even if you're really big, if you have that deflated look, it doesn't, it may not always appear that impressive. So I think it, it actually, you know, it's it's more impressive even than the scale weight difference. Um, but the the idea of refeeding along the way, um, whether it helps reduce edema, uh, it might. I think uh, I think people vary a bit, and some people have relatively linear weight loss, and some people have more stepwise weight loss. And I find that any kind of perturbation which uh, refeed could fall under can lead to that step being taken. Sort of. So you see, their weight's pretty stable, and then boom, it's like a kilo down. And it's stable again, and then it's like half a kilo down, rather than you know very consistently like a linear trend going down. So I think it can definitely help in that regard. Um, but I'm very unconvinced of the superiority, physically at least, of compared to a continuous diet. So I think based on literature, what we know about leptin and the, the amount of energy expenditure that you get from refeeds and the like. Uh, I, I think it's it's unlikely that you'll get like physically better results from it in the majority of people at least or on average in the population and brian have you had a similar experience to menno there uh sorry to alberto more so uh with the the use of refeeds or what's your experience been yeah you know it's it's been mostly positive um you know there there's always those people where you know you suspect it could be some edema that's you know masking fat loss and you know say you take a even a diet break you know a week of away from the deficit and sometimes you you don't see the drop off the other side and so i think it's the experience has been mixed there but i also think you have to you sort of have to account for the confounding variable of glycogen that's increasing during this time so i think that could even make that water retention more, I guess, more of an issue. Because like I've seen in those situations where I have somebody take a diet break and maybe we don't see scale weight drop off as much, you know, in the few days after that, they still look better. So, I mean, that tells me they're storing more glycogen, but they're, you know, they're fuller and they look less like they're retaining water. They, they're not retaining as much. And so when you're talking about shifts in water balance, you have to, you know, account for both the, um, the retention side of things and, you know, what you're gaining from those increased carbohydrates as well. So it's, it's hard to, to know for sure. But I think at the end of the day, for a physique competitor, we're, we're concerned with the visual look, you know, like whether or not there's more, you know, dry fat-free mass at the end, you know, it's, it's up for debate. You know, the evidence is, um, you know, like, like we said, it's, we still don't know for sure um, with that. Um, you know, if, if we're basing it off the Campbell study and, you know, we do see a difference in dry fat-free mass, potentially there's, there's a benefit there um, throughout the prep. But, you know, I think one thing that's, equally as important with um 
you know, the refeeds themselves is how somebody structures their training. And I think structuring your training coming off of those refeeds is, is something that I think a lot of people don't think about. And like taking, you know, myself as an example and, you know, Berto and I prepped at the same time in 2017, we live, you know, in the same city and everything. And so we're in close contact through all of this. And, you know, I, I had like a four low, three high approach kind of in the last third of prep. And what I found was psychologically, one, it was a lot easier. And I think one thing to, I think, get across first and foremost is one of the, the critiques that I've seen out there of the refeeds is you're, you're slowing weight loss because you're, you know, throwing in these higher calorie days. And if you're doing this correctly, I think most coaches are establishing the, you know, approximate deficit that they're after, and then they're allocating calories from there. And so if you're controlling the rate of loss, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, but what I found was, you know, if, I, if I, towards the end of prep, when I was losing, you know, less than 0.5% even per week, hunger was elevated, obviously, but I noticed that after those refeeds, the first two days, like say I did Friday through Sunday, the first two days coming off of that week, like I, I felt good. Like I, I would use good to describe it. Like I still felt, you know, like I, I had sort of gotten this, this mental boost. I, you know, visually looked better. Um, it made the, the peaking process, like Berto said, much more predictable because I knew like I look my best around Tuesday, you know, Tuesday morning after, you know, maybe I had some spillover that occurred, you know, uh, over the weekend and that sort of got cleaned up a bit on Monday with the low day. And I looked like that balance between fullness and condition come, you know, Tuesday morning. And so that made the peaking process very predictable. But what I also did was pro on the first two days coming off those refeeds when, you know, glycogen stores were greater, I would have like my higher volume sessions. Um, and so like I would have an upper and a lower body session. And I was able to, you know, my performance during those sessions, I, you know, it's, it's obviously an N of one. So I, I can't, this hasn't been looked at in research, but I, I noticed that my performance retention throughout that prep was significantly better than it was like in the prep prior. And in the prep prior, it, it wasn't like a, it was probably similar in terms of rate of loss. Like it was a well thought out approach. Like Berto and I worked together on it. He was my coach for that. And, um, you know, it was something that, um, I just felt like I, I pushed myself much further in my last prep and it was probably the, the most comfortable I've been in a prep, um, in the process. And I think a lot of that was only feeling like shit, like one to two days a week, you know, it was pretty substantial. I think that's really interesting because it's basically that argument of, do we just have that straight linear, less of a deficit every day, or do we have bigger deficits with like maintenance days that recharge us? And is that much of a muchness, which maybe we found in the Bill Campbell study, it's kind of, it seems like the data is not clear on that fully, but at least in both yours, Brian and Alberta's experience, refeeds definitely have practical benefits especially in contest prep periods when you're seeing kind of peaking looks and also kind of if you're thinking about where you're putting your training and planning those refeeds there could be some better practical outcomes possibly jackson i know you have a point to make so i'll let you go yeah so brian's given me a little bit of a underarm to just knock out the park here so um what he's what he's reported there with sort of synchronizing the training um around the refeeds so i've actually collected some data um, that not refeed specifically but diet breaks and how training performance in the gym changes in close proximity to the diet break itself um and it looks like strength tends to not change too much. But what really does get a, a really significant kick is endurance. Um, and like Ryan just said there, um, perhaps that means with greater endurance, we're just able to handle a little bit more volume. Um, so at least um, when we're looking in sort of close proximity around these things, like the refeeds and diet breaks, it definitely looks like we're going to be getting um, a training boost. Um, and 
probably going to be able to push a little bit harder for longer before you sort of hit that red line uh, and, the, and the gas tank is empty. Now, secondly, um, following on from a lot of points that, that Birdo made, Birdo and Brian made, um, I think a lot of people when they're talking about refeeds, they say like, and this is probably why they're so highly popularised, is people say like, my, my prep just felt way easier when I had refeeds in them compared to sort of when I didn't have refeeds in them. Um, and I think that is most likely due to that refeeds can just make the overall weight loss phase a whole lot more enjoyable. And it can do that through a number of mechanisms, I think. Um, number one, like just looking a whole lot better in those days after the refeed can do wonders for the psychology. Um, we, I do have some other data that's going to be published soon that shows um, having intermittent sort of diet breaks along your weight loss phase tend to reduce chronic levels of hunger. So it looks like when you have those things thrown in with the weight loss phase, appetite is just a whole lot easier to manage. Now, if someone's a whole lot less hungry um, during their during their prep, holy shit, that's going to mean that things just feel a whole lot nicer and a whole lot more enjoyable. When they look back on the prep, they think, hmm, that wasn't that wasn't too bad. Like the, I, I like having those refeeds in there, um, and just thirdly, um, I think having sort of refeeds and diet breaks along the prep gives you the opportunity to have social meals and, and sort of the isolation during prep can be a nasty thing um, for sort of continuous energy restriction where you're just grinding away on those low, low calories day after day for God knows 20, 20 plus weeks. Um, if you can just break it up and, and sort of you, you get that ability to go out and have a meal with, with friends and family or, or your homies, like I think that can do wonders for the psychology as well. And then sort of when you sort of put all those things together and you're looking back on your prep, you think, yeah, okay, like, I like refeeds. Refeeds are helping the process. Yeah, I, I would note that uh, uh, there has, the Campbell study actually did look at total work volume and didn't find a difference between groups. Uh, I think that's the only data we really have on uh, in strength trained individuals on um, work capacity. Uh, but we also know that um, strength training performance is generally not rate limited by glycogen storage, uh, by glycogen stores. So we also know there have actually been two good studies uh, and a few more on endurance training in the past two years, I think, that there is a huge um, placebo slash nocebo effect of energy intake on strength training performance and also endurance performance. The effect seems to be actually stronger for endurance. There's also possibly more actual physical effect for endurance. Uh, for example, there was a study recently where they had strength trainees consume a, a breakfast in the form of gel. So I didn't know if it actually was a placebo breakfast where it contained, uh, a, I think, 700 calories or so of energy. And they found that compared to eat, not eating at all, uh, people formed better with breakfast than without breakfast. But it didn't actually matter if the breakfast had energy in it. So I think there is also with, with refeeds, you know, there's when you believe in the refeeds, I think it's very easy to uh, to feel like they work, but I think when you, I think when we, I predict that in randomized control trials, we won't actually see benefits for uh, given the same total final body composition change and rate of weight loss. I think we won't see benefits for uh, almost any uh, factor. Actually, I think certain people will do better, certain people will do worse. Um, but um, with speaking of Bill Campbell's study, I'm actually doing a study with him to replicate the Matador study on diet breaks. Uh, I can't give too many details yet, but we found um, of the emotional constructs that the only one that differed was there was um, after diet breaks, two diet breaks per week in a six-week uh, weight loss phase, there was uh, the diet break group reported better management of uh, disinhibition scores, but hunger and emotional eating scores did not differ between groups. And you have to factor in that they spent two more weeks on the diet, right? So I think for quite some individuals where refeeds decidedly work, like you see that these individuals just do better with refeeds in practice versus without, I think a large portion of them just diet too aggressively. And we see, for example, in a study that if you're not equating for time, refeeds or diet breaks, then you know the, the practical example or the practical comparison, I think, would be more like, what if you just diet slower? You know, what if you don't take a complete break, but you just take the whole diet a little bit slower? And I think then you'll get much more equivalent results. Is that what, Jackson, is that what you've been finding so far with your kind of research and everything? How are you feeling? Um, so not with hunger. 
Um, so we, when we're looking at our hunger, satiety, drive to eat, prospective consumption, um, all of those things are basically, and, and the, the, the standardized effect sizes are, are, are really quite strong. Um, we're so, it, what we're seeing is that um, appetite was um, substantially lower in the diet break group. And th this is not just immediately post-diet break or anything like that. This is before the diet break happens, so sort of after a block of dieting. Hunger is still way lower than, than the continuous group who's, who's having no diet breaks along the way. Um, so like I can only be confident in my study and the data that I'm looking at. Um, but when looking at the numbers that I do have, it, it seems like diet breaks um, are, are allowing um, easier hunger management. And, and in terms of the training, um, like I think there's a difference when we're looking at sort of how training performances changes like immediately after a refeed or diet break versus sort of looking at it over sort of a context of like a 15 weeks weight loss phase or something like that. Um, because similar to what Menno's reporting, um, I didn't see any um, performance differences and we, we, we didn't measure just sort of resistance training. We used a isokinetic dynamometer, which can sort of very accurately, accurately measure, um, small changes in sort of torque and force and power output. Um, and what we did see was that if you measure sort of just before the diet break, sort of after their block of dieting, um, performance isn't really any different between the diet break and the non-diet break groups. But when we look sort of immediately after the diet break, that's when the, when performance sort of starts to shoot off and we're not we're not sort of sure how long this sort of boost in performance lasts for whether it's a couple of days three four days um, but at least immediately after the diet break we are seeing a boost very cool and if i can bring it back to you alberto with your experience with refeeds i think overall kind of at least the theme i'm getting here is there doesn't seem to be any obvious downsides to them at least for people that do well with them have you found people like having different experiences have you had people who just don't use them uh what's your been your experience there and also like number of days what have you found there hi guys steve here just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service at revive stronger we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level if you're interested, check the description and sign up. You know, I think for the personality type, it's maybe like, go, go, go. I'm going to rush. I'm going to rush. Um, the grinder, if you will. Um, I think for them, it can be quite hard. Just like, but these are also the same kind of people that, you know, every set failure, right? Um, no days off. Who, if anything, have to teach them uh, somewhere along the way the benefits of kind of slowing things down a little bit and how that sometimes can get you to your destination a little bit faster. Um, but, um, but yeah, um, same thing as Brian, by the way, when it comes to the training, I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that you don't feel like dog trash for a few days going into your training session. I think that makes a huge difference. And not just when it comes to that, but when it comes to everything, like I knew that after my, Friday, Saturday, Sunday refeed that, hey, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to be pretty on and, you know, I'm going to be able to handle the other responsibilities outside of my contest prep pretty well. Um, so, which, which again, that's, that's, I think that's super important because your stress wick gets like this small when you are deep into a contest prep. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's so many moving parts. It impacts so many things in a positive way. Um, females, for example, when it comes to amenorrhea, like I've seen way less of that. Um, and since, you know, we can talk about periods, um, especially with my preppers who were, you know, were, were comfortable like that. Uh, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll report that on those reefy days are like, yo coach, I'm waking up and I'm like, I'm pitching a tent. So, um, you know, which, you know, isn't everything, but it's, it, it, it means something's different. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I've seen nothing but positives, um, with the exception of maybe that personality type or perhaps the personality type where it's like, Hey, you know, you give them a little extra and they just like lose control. So, um, those are probably the two instances where it's like, okay, we might need a slightly different system for you, but I mean, that's, that's what personalized coaching is about. Brian, is the the same for you in terms of experience there? 
Yeah, it, basically everything that Berto said. I, I, I did want to add, you know, when we're talking about contest prep, I think it, it's almost a different discussion than just regular dieters, you know, because contest prep, you're, you are significantly more depleted. Um, you know, your, your, your baseline of comparison is, is much lower when it comes to performance. Um, and, you know, Jackson, I, I had asked you this, and I'm interested to see if, like, body fat levels, how that impacts things in terms of, you know, how these refeeds may help mitigate fat-free mass um, or, you know, potentially basal metabolic rate, you know, who, who knows there. But um, I, I do think it, it would be it would be foolish to ignore the impact of just how trashy people feel like in a contest prep in those later stages, because that's, that's a huge component of what makes prep so difficult to begin with versus like a mini cut in the off season. It's all, it's almost like I, I do use refeeds throughout most of the dieting process, like even like the, the pre prep fat loss phases, but it's like the, the role of those refeeds, it, it changes, you know, originally it's more, this is a social like tool to help you, you know, balance the the deficit with your lifestyle. And later on, it's more informing the peaking process, helping keep your, your training going in a positive direction, whether that be through, you know, a mechanism intramuscularly or, you know, through just like Berto said, just feeling better going into the training, you know, you have more pep in your step when you're full versus, you know, you can't get a pump, you, you know, just feel and look like garbage. So, um, so I, I think, yeah, the discussion sort of needs to be framed when people talk about this within the context of where in this timeline you are in which demographic you're talking about, because I think the, the narrative can change pretty dramatically dependent on that. Yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. Oh, let's go Menno then Jackson. <laughs> so yeah, that's actually also a point I was going to make and that I think uh, mental health benefits of the, or of, um, refeeds are much more likely in contest prep because you know you're going to suffer and you know you're going to be super food focused anyway. So you already spend much of your time and energy on what you're going to eat. Whereas for other individuals, if you look at the diet break literature, we do see some vague trends of negative uh, effects of adherence. As in people report sometimes more difficulty staying with their routines and establishing habits, for example. And in contest competitor, these things are not an issue. But for most people, these things can actually be very significant issues. And then if you give them, especially I think the, the wrong way to do it would be some, you know, people sort of uh, equate a refeed with a rationalized cheat day. And they introduce a lot of foods into their diet that they shouldn't. And they really don't look better after that. You know, they, they, if we're talking about dropping water retention, it's the opposite if you have like high sodium foods and stuff so i think for these people the a, cons a more consistent approach can actually be much better when they're still forming their routines and habits to those kind of things uh, so i would say you know i would definitely caveat the, the no potential downsides to um with that and i'd also say that if we look at range frequency theory literature on uh, psychophysics of happiness for example then you actually see that subjective well-being um is strongly influenced by the um, by the reference values and near nearby so if you how happy are you now then um, it basically it, it depends on how happy you've been in the, in the past period in particular in your total reference but it's not it's influenced only by the rank order and the effect of that is that if you have like one high day then it sort of drags down everything else because everything else seems less good compared to that and the happiness literature actually concludes based on that that it's better to have uh, a good life, a very steady, good life with occasional very bad periods. And if you have the opposite, like a, a, a life that's generally mediocre, but sometimes amazing, then you actually feel much worse on average. You also see this in studies, for example, where you have some people's hands in ice water. And then you can, you can actually test, you know, you can have sort of a, a physical level of how bad the, the stress is. And you see that if it's, um, 
it's okay all the time, but really bad at the beginning, for example, then it actually feels pretty good. But if it's, um, there's like no pain at all on a few periods, but it's pretty bad all the other time, then you feel like really bad about it. So uh, what I actually do is I have a lot of sort of, I guess you could call it sort of reverse refeed in the sense that I also do um, calorie periodization or calorie cycling, as you could call it, but I have more low days rather than high days, uh, which is more like the 5-2 type diet or protein sparing modified fast is what I recommend. I'd never recommend complete fasting, basically. So it's, I think it's a similar method for psychological adherence and probably depends on the individual if you like having like low days or high days. Super interesting. Jackson, did you want to expand? Yeah. So some, some of these thoughts um, I shared with Brian already um, when we were chatting privately. Um, so there's a decent, uh, at least theoretical rationale that um, refeeds will benefit you more the leaner you are, i.e. sort of contest prep um, competitor. When we're looking at sort of the literature on sort of overweight individuals dieting, um, usually we will see no losses in fat-free mass um, whatsoever. Um, sometimes even seeing improvements um, in anabolic hormone profiles. Um, hunger tends to not even really be an issue worth sort of talking about in the early phases, but then we contrast that to sort of a really leaned down competitor and with like the protein losses can go up three to four fold. Um, they're at substantially high risk of, of losing fat-free mass um, and muscle mass. Um, the training performance considerations need to be factored in. Um, we can we can often see sort of their anabolic hormone profiles start crashing. Um, and obviously we know sort of hunger becomes a major issue and the adherence start, starts getting really threatened. So it makes sense that refeeds are going to benefit you more the leaner you are. Um, and with that in mind, perhaps it's no surprise that sort of with the Campbell study, um, who was sort of just like an average Joe group of res recreational trainees, um, that we sort of didn't really see too much when we compared um, to the, the differences between the groups. And perhaps if we had this really, really lean cohort really dieted down, okay, perhaps maybe we'd see something there. Um, and it's actually something I'm, I'm trying to analyze at the moment on one of my new studies is basically to separate the cohort into sort of the leanest guys and the guys who've been dieting the longest versus the sort of little bit fatter guys that haven't been dieting so long to see if there's any divergent responses in how these people respond to sort of diet breaks and refeeds. So that will, I'm hoping that we'll have like the cohort, the lean cohort are lean enough that'll be sort of applicable to sort of some guys like six, eight weeks out sort of thing. Um, but that's going to be cool to see. Um, and I'm very intrigued to sort of pick apart that data. I imagine also the benefits there in terms of like, that's when the stress re like retention of water could be highest. So kind of alleviating that and also like combined with the peaking benefits of seeing the physique. So that makes a lot of sense that if like that would nicely all kind of work together. I don't know if, um, Alberto or Brian, if you've ever had it where just thinking for females or maybe a really sedentary guy, taking them through kind of the days where they are refeeding, whether or not the low days are then just like obliterated, like too low to get a decent rate of loss. Have you ever experienced that where it's practically it just becomes difficult to apply it? I, I just so I understand your question correctly, like almost like we're we're using the refeeds and it's compromising the the deficit overall as a result. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's where to get the kind of level of deficit that you're shooting for by having two days at maintenance, it means the deficit on the days where you're in it is so large that maybe it's not adherable for the the individual. Yeah, I, I think it's it depends on on the person. I mean, a lighter individual if you put two of their days at maintenance and you're trying to, um, you know, lose at a specific rate, you know, those low days can be pretty low. And, and I think that needs to be accounted for. But if you're looking at weight loss relative, like a, a percent weight loss, their deficit's going to be smaller. It's going to be scaled to their weight. So, um, you know, I think there are some situations where it's, it's harder for sure. Um, but it's, I, I kind of use them as tools to intentionally close the deficit as the prep goes on. You know, I think adding yeah. that like a third refeed is something that can be a nice way to, you know, go from 
you know, like a 0.5% weight loss to a point, you know, whatever, 0.3, just arbitrary. So um, something to sort of help slowly close that gap um, of the deficit. And, um, you know, until, you know, eventually it can kind of become, you know, what Menno had suggested, like the majority of the days are in maintenance. And then you have some of these, you know, a couple diet days, you know, throughout the week. Um, and I, I don't think that's common in practice. I don't think most people get to that point, but I think with an ample timeline, people can, and I think that's beneficial, you know, eating into a show. But um, yeah, I, I think there, there are situations where, you know, you, you have a deficit in place that you need to hit and refeeds can be, uh, you know, you, you have to limit their use in order to obtain that deficit a bit in a practical manner anyway. I guess you might apply them every other week or something rather than every week or something along those lines at the start of the diet, particularly. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. I don't know if you have anything more there, Alberto. Um, yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we've talked about how it helps us, you know, get a general idea of what's going to happen during each week. Um, my friend will tell you during his peak week, it was so predictable. I don't think we missed a single one. We knew exactly what he was going to look like on the other end. And predictability, like that is, that's, that's huge when it comes to all this, when it comes to training, nutrition, you know. Um, but of course, the best peak is the one that you do when you're ready early, you know, four to six weeks away and you're bringing food up and, you know, you're literally at maintenance by the end. So you're ready to compete like Monday through Friday, it doesn't matter, right? Um, what I've done with that quite often is like actually we've just taken away, like Brian said, the um, amount of low days over the course of a week to the point where it's like, hey, guess what? Now we're on high days, seven days a week. Um, and you soak someone in that, um, and for like three or four weeks, it's a, a bunch of wonderful things happen. Um, like most people are literally convinced they put back and I am in some individuals, I'm, I'm convinced we've put backs on some of the muscle that we might have lost as we went through the most turbulent, turbulent part of, uh, of the gym. Uh, but, but again, there's so much pliability. There's some people who have on like 10 low, three high, that's just what works really well. Um, some of those like uh, lean limbed uh, uh, midsection full of fat, typical males. And I'm like, bro, we can just go the first two months without repeats. So, uh, um, you know, again, um, it's a tool, it's a tool. And, um, and, and that's where, you know, like just being context aware, uh, matters, matters a lot. So, um, so, so yeah, yeah. Um, wonderful tool, but, but again, there's many ways of going about it. I know a lot of bodybuilders that, you know, have, um, gone in sensational shape, kept all their lean body mass seemingly and they don't use repeats. So, but, but again, like we also got to dive a little bit deeper into their situation and why it might, that may have worked. Fantastic. I have one, one oh. more thing to add, um, kind of in relation to peaking. I think a lot of people don't realize how much glycogen storage capacity is in flux throughout a prep. Like it, it, it scales in a sense with where your, you know, energy and carb intake is. And so, you know, people that, you know, redline it into a show and then have this aggressive backload and end up looking like, yeah, insulin sensitivity is maybe highest, but they end up a little bit spilled over, you know? And so these, these, you know, glycogen storing enzymes, you know, I, I'm not well-versed in the physiology of this, but I know it's, it's upregulated with an increase in, in carbohydrate intake. And so, um, you know, having those, those days where, you know, you have three high days, potentially you're, you're able to, you know, even if you're equating the deficit for the week, you know, I, it, I'd be curious to see if like glycogen storage capacity is, is different. Um, but, you know, at the end of a prep, it absolutely does make a difference where, you know, if you can bring up these high days, like you, look much fuller and whether or not that's you know putting on you know additional muscle mass i mean it's it's possible but 
I think visually just the increase in, in muscle fullness is substantial. Um, and I think it's, it's not something you can make up by dieting all the way through and then just having like a, a front load. Like, I think if you're like the, the time course for some of those, it, it just seems like if you're adding food back in, like you're, you're getting better for over a week, you know, like that, I know that's something that I noticed where, you know, we, we dieted in, we started adding food back in and the longer I was in that, you know, like Berto said, you know, sitting in that maintenance phase, the better and better I started to look. And, um, you know, I think some of that could just be glycogen storage capacity going up and it's just a, a gradual process, but I'm not sure. It's just an observation there. Really interesting. I don't know if anyone has anything more they want to add. I know we're coming up to an hour. I can try and summarize and uh, see if anyone has anything additionally to add to that. Jackson, go on. I'll just say, I'll just say something small on Brian there. Um, what he's reporting there um, has been supported in a lot of the research on keto. Like when you see these, so these guys are having restricting carbohydrate intake significantly, and they do see those changes in enzymes, specifically things like pyruvate dehydrogenase, like goes down. And what they see sort of after a period of sort of um, being on a keto diet or very low carb diet, when they reintroduce carbs, they're just not really good at storing them um, and sort of processing those carbohydrates. So what Brian, like I hadn't thought about this up until Brian just mentioned it, but what he says makes a whole lot of sense. Perhaps sort of these intermittent high carbohydrate days along the weight loss phase sort of keeps those enzymes that allow us to sort of use carbohydrates effectively, perhaps they stay in check. And then when the time comes and we're leading into some peak week and we want that ability to be able to use those carbohydrates most effectively, perhaps that's why we're seeing sort of those better results, at least visually with the increased muscle fullness and things like that. So yeah, I just wanted to jump on the back of Brian's there and say like what he's saying there does make a whole lot of sense. Fantastic. Guys, first of all, I want to say a massive thank you for you making the time and making this happen. I think it's been a really constructive to chat and I'm not sure it went exactly how people thought it might go either. Um, I'm not sure, Uh, but it it definitely has been eye-opening to me and it's really cool to hear all of your guys' thoughts about this, specifically the study, but also the anecdote, because at the moment there's not a whole lot of research on bodybuilders, uh, hence this being the first one by Bill Campbell's lab and hopefully we get more. Maybe we get more research to support it, especially if we have it in leaner individuals. It seems to have more significant practical uh, kind of importance potentially for leaner contest prepping individuals. And then maybe it's a little bit more individual towards kind of just psychological adherence, maybe kind of days off dieting just to allow someone to be a bit more social when they are not a competitor and a little bit more in their off season phase. And some people might decide not to do it for kind of reasons of causing like binging or whatever it might be where they kind of need what Menno talked about that kind of uh, habit and where they just need to be kind of robotic every day have their set meals and when they have to change something it just throws them off but I think for a bodybuilder who's able to kind of introduce these days and be a bit more calculated I could definitely see the the practical benefits so again guys I want to say a massive thank you and I don't know if anyone has anything to add if not um I probably will save you sharing where everyone can find you and I'll have that all linked below. Um, so I make sure people do look for these guys on Instagram and their websites and everything because I think uh, these guys are doing some fantastic work and I highly recommend you go check that out. So yeah, thank you guys. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Jake to Steve. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for 
people within our little niche is going to be a website they will get early access to our podcast you can access us ask us questions the community aspect we have a forum there you can ask questions but also you can you can lock your journey there's also going to be courses on there courses presentations on different topics discount of past seminar footage we will lock our journey as well we'll start vlogging we're going to have documentaries our entire athletic journey Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.